All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Matu Gavadon, who is the creator, co-founder of Tagai. Matu, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks. Uh, good to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I am looking forward to hearing into what you're working on with Tagai. And with that, let's just kind of dive in. What are you working on? Sure. Um, so funny story. Uh, we we actually uh, pivoted uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> so originally what we were building um, was a uh, file search file search engine for teams. So essentially um, we were pulling in files from uh, companies' intranets, Dropboxes, Google Drives, using AI to understand what was in those files, tagging those files, and then offering up a kind of like a Google image search like engine um, to essentially access all different files. And, uh, and yeah, so we kind of like ran into um, this, this conundrum, uh, you might say, where uh, the big companies that needed it, uh, you know, so I, I'm, I'm based in New York. So the ones that we were talking to were mostly uh, banks um, weren't going to buy really, um, a solution created by two uh, random 24-year-olds <laughs> with no uh, credibility to, to speak of, except that they've uh, worked at startups. And, um, and small to medium-sized enterprises uh, needed it, but weren't quite willing to pay uh, a good amount of money for it. And um, in my initial customer discovery process, um, I always ask founders, um, you know, uh, like what are some problems, um, that you have with search and organization rather than just try to like steer them like immediately towards, um, you know, like, can we like build a file search engine for you guys? Um, and what was interesting, um, was that, uh, I kind of started out with like this theory that, um, essentially as, data grows, uh, as the, the amount of data grows, um, organizing and searching that data was going to be um, essentially the, uh, the, the hardest thing. Um, you know, storage like already like has Moore's law behind it. Um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's gonna grow like consistently, but then there is no real Moore's law for like search or like retrieval. So, you know, how do you deal with like, like data that is twice as twice as big and a search engine that is really just the same as the one that's that you had like 10 years ago right um so yeah so we kind of started out with this theory and essentially what we started talking to customers and we started asking them okay well um what would you pay for um we noticed that it, it there were a couple things in search and organization that they would pay for. Um, but the number one story that kind of like stuck with me um, in the not so early days, but um, definitely like towards the middle, uh, towards the end, uh, towards the beginning of our pivot was uh, a story by a YC company, a YC founder, actually. And uh, I had asked him that question. And he said, well, you know, I, I spend one to two hours every day tagging intercom conversations. Um, 
And I have a backlog of about a thousand conversations that I haven't even gotten to. Uh, intercom conversations, by the way, uh, for reference, are uh, customer support conversations, a little bit like Zendesk. Um, and I thought that was like really interesting. I was uh, I was thinking like, wow, so you do all of this manually? Um, you just like take an hour or two every day to like tag these conversations and. Um, there's even like a really good like search and indexing engine for it. And he was telling me that he had contemplated building his own elastic search based solution for it. Um, at that point I thought like, wow, that's, that's a pretty crazy pain point for, you know, like a YC company that's like, like pretty successful. Um, and, uh, I'm sure that he's like looked into other solutions if he's like, you know, thinking about resorting to this. So I started like asking around um, the, the same question. And um, what we noticed is that, well, a lot of companies didn't even like get to tag their conversations. They just wanted to like answer their customer support conversations as fast as possible and didn't really see tagging as a priority. But as a result of that, um, you know, they had no analytics whatsoever on what their customers were talking to them about. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, that, that was kind of like the, the one scenario and the other, like, on the other hand, you had like these companies that were like building like, like, uh, no code applications with like Coda, Zapier, Airtable, um, and all that stuff. Um, and you know, like not only was it like super tech debt heavy, but, um, you know, like it, it definitely was, wasn't uh, feature rich. So we started asking, you know, how much would you pay for this? And <laughs> the answers were like a lot more satisfying uh, than with our initial uh, file search engine idea. So uh, yeah, we pivoted to that and uh, we're, we're actually gonna launch it uh, this weekend. So that is exciting. The uh, congratulations on making making the pivot and figuring out what people wanted. Um, I want to keep diving into what the new product will be. So can you describe in like a couple sentences ultimately what it enables someone who mans a live chat to do? Like exactly what are, what, as someone who doesn't do that and hasn't done that in the past, I may not fully understand the problem, but like what exactly are they tagging? And then is that other tags like searchable? Can you just go a little deeper into the, pro uh, the product? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way that like um, Intercom works, it's it's not only live chat, but it's also like uh, emails, um, you know, like uh, Twitter, Twitter messages, etc. Um, and it all comes into the system, and it all gets transformed into these customer tickets. Now, what we want to be able to do is essentially give. Uh, well, this this is going to sound uh, a little little 2020 uh, Silicon Valley, but uh, have like a superhuman like experience for these uh for this tagging experience essentially where you know because you have like an overwhelming amount of like customer tickets how can you get through these as fast as possible and you know like even just instantly so the way that like our engine is built um we originally thought that maybe just straight um nlp so natural language processing would be the way to go. So essentially just 
um, getting all these like customer conversations and then using machine learning to identify like keywords within each conversation uh, that would be relevant uh, or entities or you know uh, anything that well we we would find relevant in these conversations and then tag them with it and then we realized well a lot of people actually still want to do this uh, themselves especially founders of like small to medium size and this is uh, after we talked to like users you know we we noticed that like some of them just wanted like a much much faster experience and so what we built is essentially a way uh, for, for founders, for customer support teams, uh, customer success to essentially go through their entire conversations 10 times as fast as um, they can right now with, you know, like uh, the existing um, like ways. And the way that we've kind of like built this is um, just very simple interface, conversation on one side, um, the suggested tags that we generate with machine learning on the other. And you can essentially just set, select like the tags that you want or create your own tags and then use keyboard shortcuts to just um, navigate uh, and triage all these things uh, super fast. Oh, uh, another really interesting feature that we yeah. uh, added this week actually, um, analytics. So then we have like a dashboard where uh, you can essentially see like the top tags um, that you have. Um, so like the tags that are like mentioned the most in your conversation, so for example, uh, my latest, uh, uh, your latest uh, iOS release might be one like so like iOS um, tag. And then we have sentiment scores. So essentially we use sentiment analysis on all your customer conversations to understand are these tags like mentioned in a positive or negative way. So when people mention your last iOS release, are they happy or are they mad about it? How do you know what kind of technology goes into sentiment analysis? Like, how do you know if they're happy or sad? Uh, once again, it's a natural language processing. So machine learning. I guess how to like, so I want to like lightly dive into that just cause like I, I am not super technical. I'm actually, you know, I would say lightly technical. Like I'm very far away from that stuff. Um, so is it one of these things where you can analyze so much text where you can then like, understand if something correlates to positive versus something correlates to negative or can you just explain a little bit on how the NLP like works in your product I think that's super fascinating yeah for sure I mean there's a bunch of different ways that you can do NLP um, I think the most like simple straightforward way to understand it is uh, to associate like words with certain like ratings on a sentiment scale so for example if somebody says uh, you know fuck like it's very likely that they're not very happy. And on the other side, uh, on the other hand, you know, if they say I'm happy, then you can associate like the word happy with, you know, being higher on the positive sentiment scale. Yeah. Well, you could, uh, you could uh, just to be devil's advocate there, you could have someone that like see goes on the product and they're like, fuck, this is so good. <laughs> and then they can, I'm just joking. Um, but like that is very See, but cool. Then, then the word like good would like essentially like Boom. offset that. It's cool. It's yeah. Proof. Yeah. No, that's cool. I like that. So like, take me back to the moment when you realized that what you were building before, you know, wasn't gonna fly. Were you in denial for a certain amount of time, or like was there a point where like you knew something was wrong but you didn't commit to a pivot yet? Let's go into that moment. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, one of the things that uh, you kind of like hear uh, when you're building startups is that you have to be very passionate about like your ideas without being too attached to them. Um, and it always kind of like felt like a paradox to me where like, obviously you need to be like very passionate about an idea that like, you know, you're, you're, you think is going to succeed, but at the same time, you can't be too loosely attached to it so that like you can pivot essentially if you see it not working out. Um, and I kind of like always kind of like kept that in, in the back of my mind. And I think the best way to um, kind of look at it is uh, to try to like detach yourself from like your MVP and what you've built. Essentially not see it as your baby, but as just something else that you could like scrap tomorrow if you, if you needed to. Um, and in that sense, kind of like that, like conscious detachment from your own product, uh, to, to be able to like, kind of like see it almost as a third party, um, was the best way to see it. In the end, like what really kind of like pushed me over the edge was just asking people to pay for it. I think that's like the biggest indicator of like, you know, whether or not a product is going to be successful, especially in the SaaS world. And, you know, when people were like, ah, like, you know, maybe like if you added like these couple features, I was like, if you don't like need the core feature and if you're not willing to pay for the core feature, then like it's, it's not going to work out. Oh, yeah, I totally, yeah, I definitely relate to, to all of that. It's super useful. Um, another thing I want to kind of dive into if you're open to it and if not, that's fine. Um, Cause I might be mm-hmm. like information you don't want to share, but I'm like the pricing. I'd love to know. <laughs> excuse me i'd love to know what people were willing to pay for the first product um mm-hmm. like the the max you know whatever that was and then what they're willing to pay for this new product and why that difference i don't know what the numbers are but i hope maybe you'll, like you might say them and it was like what but what different what what that sorry um what that difference means which makes you feel like you want to pursue this second idea you know what i mean yeah absolutely um, so what's interesting is that the two projects use very, very similar technology, right? Uh, in both cases, what you're doing is that you're, uh, using NLP to like tag, like text-based documents, and then you're essentially putting them in this, uh, uh, like database, right? Where you can easily access them and essentially run analytics on them. So at the core, uh, the product is the same. Really, what's what's changed is the is the UI and the UX, which is which is you know like complicated, but not that complicated. Um, and uh, you're right. Like the, the it, it, it was very different, right? Like when I was like talking to people about like you know what they would pay for um, the file search engine, they were like, well, you know, we pay like what like twenty dollars per month for like box or I, I think it was like something different. They, they always kind of like try to like, like um, try to, uh, how should I put it, link it to essentially one of their like storage like devices. So like, you know, well, we pay like, you know, $20 for box. So like probably like around the same or maybe even a little less since, you know, you're not like really storing stuff. And I was like, wow, that's, that's actually like not that much, especially for like, you know, like SaaS. Um, and some of them were straight up, well, like, you know, we probably wouldn't pay for it, but, um, you know, like, uh, 
we like if we had like an enterprise contract like like a company-wide contract then we'd probably pay for it so like they were trying to go like the freemium route um with like enterprise sales um and and yeah so that that, that was kind of like interesting and one of the things that i think um kind of uh was was the reason behind this um was that when you price a product you usually try to do uh you usually try to do a couple things one you try to see well okay like how much does it cost to operate my product so essentially um essentially what is the base cost for my product and what is um the uh value that i'm providing to the um to my customer and essentially you want to ideally price your product somewhere in between those two things um there's a lot of like different theories about like how you price your product uh, how you should price your product especially in the early days some people say that you should provide a 10x value to your customers so whatever value you provide to your customers you should be 10 times less than that and um in the end i think what was interesting and uh well not interesting what was like difficult to like pin down was like the value that we provided to our customers so um here it was like well like you know like how much is a file search engine worth to my company um, especially when, you know, you don't have like any, like, like good metrics to essentially compare it to like, you know, like how, um, their current, like internet, like how their current internet search works, you know, what is the worth almost of like data within your company? And that's just such a hard thing to like pin down. And then you have to convince executives that like their data is worth this much and that you're actually going to be able to unlock it with your search engine it, essentially it was trying to like price that was was incredibly hard now on the other hand with customer customer uh, customer ticket analytics uh, tagging analytics uh well that was a lot simpler um and people were just much more willing to like shell out money and I really tried to understand why, and um, I think it like came down to a couple couple different things. Um, one, the fact that it was much more of a niche product, so um, you know, uh, you didn't already have a bunch of products on the market that kind of did something similar, uh, but but that you know, like um, so for example, like you know, for your company intranet or like Google Drive, you already had a search and you already kind of did the job but not really for customer analytics um like a lot of these companies didn't even have a way to essentially like know what their users were talking about so uh and like you know like uh, i'm just gonna give you like some of the prices that we've heard like pretty much like the lowest we've heard was like 50 dollars uh per user and i was like wow that's crazy that's like more than double like what the like last people were like say like like giving us um, and, and it made sense, you know, like, um, especially for like, you know, like the, the founder that like, uh, spent one to two hours every day, right. If you like value, um, his time at $50 an hour and which is very low for a founder of a successful, like, you know, like YC back company, um, you can kind of like get to, uh, well, okay. It's like worth like $1,500 in 
just pure like work, uh, work hours over a month. And then you provide that 10 X value and it's $150 and that's $150 for one person. Now, of course, not everyone's time is worth $150. Um, uh, 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 sorry, $50 per hour, but you know, it, it kind of gave you that kind of like, okay, well to this person, it's actually worth this much, even if you're providing like a 10 X value. And in that case, you know, it was, it was, um, yeah, I guess you'd say it was much more straightforward, uh, what the value was. Um, and, you know, we're still trying to like understand, well, like kind of going forward for like companies that don't even have this yet. Like, how do you price, how do you price this? Um, since once again, you kind of like run into like this like problem where it's like, well, um, you don't know like exactly like the value it provides you. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that, um, you know, when we try to link it back to um, concrete like uh, company like metrics, uh, we found that churn is actually one that uh, we're really good at uh, essentially reducing. So um, when you look at uh, what your customers are telling you, right? and you look at the ones that have like the worst sentiment so like the ones that you know like people are really mad at and if you could you know kind of like even like going forward like link that to um you know analytics within your company of like users that have actually churned if you have that and you have the customer lifetime value then you could actually put a price on each tag which i think could be like really really cool right essentially everybody that's mentioned your latest iOS release, uh, uh, sorry. So your latest iOS release has caused like this many customers to churn and each one of them has like an average customer lifetime value of this much. So it's cost you this much total. And um, you know, then you can start to like prioritize like, well, which tags should you address first? And then, um, you know, kind of like build towards reducing the churn on those, uh, on those tags. So like then like, you know, we have like a very clear like pricing strategy going forward or like not very clear, but like a lot clearer than before. And uh, um, there are a couple of other like pricing strategies that uh, I, I've like tried um, and that I've like heard about uh, if you're interested in hearing that. Um, yeah, I'm down to jam on, on pricing strategies. What are some <laughs> other ones that you've, uh, that you've thought about? Um, so th it's not so much I've thought about them as like, you know, I kind of like saw like other people using it of like, like successful like startup companies that were like in adjacent space. Um, some of them uh, essentially just asked like, well, okay, what's the lowest you would pay for this? Uh, what's the lowest cost? Like, what do you think this costs to us? Uh, what do you think is a reasonable price? And uh, what would you think? Uh, is an expensive price for our product. And you'll actually find that most times uh, somewhere in between like what they would pay for the price and like um, what they think is like a very expensive like price for your product is the way to go. Um, at least like, you know, that's that's uh, what founders have said. And it's definitely something that I kind of want to do in the early days uh, before we get like, you know, the more, concrete pricing strategy um, in it. Um, you know, I, I was listening to this, uh, to this um, 
podcast by the segment founder actually um uh where he was kind of like talking about like pricing in the early days of uh of uh segment and uh this this one time he went into a meeting uh with uh with his like new like vp of sales or something and the vp of sales said uh, you know uh, instead of asking for like twelve thousand dollars like ask for like or i think it was like instead of asking for like a thousand and two hundred dollars uh ask for like twelve thousand dollars so like uh or, or was it like a hundred twenty thousand dollars it was something uh, crazy it was twelve thousand uh originally asked so ask for a hundred twenty thousand i i I'm yeah familiar with the story <laughs> yeah it, and i thought like wow that's crazy like pricing in the early days is just such a shit show like there's just yeah and well, yeah really... do you remember uh what happened do you remember what the outcome of of that was do you remember the yeah what happened when he said yeah yeah they negotiated down to like a little bit but they still made like a like 500x increase yeah. on like their like pricing strategy which was like crazy you know um and you know like in the end i i, I really think it all comes down to you know um what is the value perceived and like how much can you get people to pay for a product um and yeah the, the two are like very much intrinsically linked and in the end like the value perceived for a product is just so intangible um especially in the early days right um so many factors come into play especially when you're especially when you're like you know kind of like uh creating a new market um or like you know kind of like addressing like an underserved one um just because like people don't really have like any reference points you know um so yeah um just overall like very very interesting thing and pricing is incredibly important and it's kind of crazy like you know the fact that like all of this is very much just still like an art almost rather than a science and kind of you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you're that you're announcing or launching this your new version of the product in a couple of days or uh, or this weekend or Monday. How are you thinking about the launch? Are you thinking about a big launch, or are you just going to tell some of your friends like what's uh, what's the plan? Uh, so uh, we actually have. Um, so no, I, I'm not going to a big a big public uh, product hunt launch. Um, I, uh, the, the way I want to do it, um, is kind of like slow and steady. Um, so we already have, uh, uh, several companies committed to like paying for the beta. Um, and, uh, we're going to try it out with them. Uh, they're all like really, really great companies all growing very fast. So, um, you know, they're, they're, I think ideal customers for us, uh, right now. We want to see what the engagement is, what the retention is, uh, essentially really kind of like try to like build the product around those like early customers that um, I think will like kind of like lead uh, where we go and really try to like refine our vision uh, before like really trying to grow. Um, so essentially almost like constrained growth. Um, um, I, I really only think that you should do like big public launches with like TechCrunch and like product hunts when you, uh, when you think you found product market fit just because uh, growth, yeah. Uh, you you can only have so many of those, whereas like, you know, like retention, retention is the new customer growth, right? Yeah. Well, there, there's the, um, I don't know if it's a quote, but it's like the idea that the best way to, 
you know, grow is to just not churn. <laughs> Don't churn people and you'll grow faster. You can grow very quickly, but if you're churning, you're not growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think there was like an exact number around that where it was like six times cheaper to retain a customer than it was to acquire a new one. Um, I, fully, I, think, I believe that. I believe that 100%. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're in New York. You're building this in New York. What's it, uh, what's it like uh, at the New York tech, the tech scene? Are you involved in the tech scene at all? Uh, kind of what's it like building in New York? Yeah, for sure. Um, honestly, it's, it's a very, very different experience from San Francisco. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've spent not a lot of time in San Francisco, but definitely like uh, a significant amount of time. I'm just like traveling there. I was actually there like all of last week from uh, Wednesday till this Wednesday. Uh, I just got back and, um, and you know, like there you kind of like uh, go to the coffee shops and you have people talking about like GPUs and, uh, and, you know, like cloud servers and, and all that stuff. And in New York, you know, you have like finance, you've got like fashion, you've got like all these different like disciplines uh, rather than just tech. Um, and I think that in that sense, um, it's it's better and worse. It's definitely got its trade-offs, right? We've got a couple like really good VCs here. Um, just kind of like off the top of my head, you know, you've got like first round, you've got like uh, for uh, enterprise like companies, you've got like a bold start, you've got um, uh, General Catalyst um, has, has uh, an office here. Um, so, you know, you, you definitely have like some VC fund funds that, that are pretty good here. Oh, you've got Bessemer, I think is also based in New York. Um, and uh, so, you know, you've got like all like these like really great uh, like VCs that are, that are in New York. Obviously, like, you know, people are not throwing money at you like they are in San Francisco. And it, it, it almost it almost like strikes me as like maybe like a better thing just because um, you know, like you, uh, you're much less likely to go on a fruitless endeavor um, by essentially like, by essentially like raising the barriers to entry, you also like almost self-select um, the people that, that, uh, uh, that are going to, you know, like uh, be successful. Well, not self-select. Um, you, you, you get what I mean, right? Like yeah, essentially definitely. you, you, you have like a higher, uh, uh, higher quality, um, overall like startup ecosystem just because the barriers to entry are like slightly higher. Um, so yeah, so, uh, in that sense, you know, like New York is, 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 um, is not, I wouldn't say better, but like, you know, different, um, uh, as for, you know, like, uh, I think I think the biggest like like trade-offs here um, are like engineering-wise. Like that's that's always like what people like ask about. Like oh, like you know, like if you got engineers, like the highest quality is in Silicon Valley. And um, I'd say yes and no. Um, like uh, yes, you've got like amazing like engineers in Silicon Valley. Uh, but I think that you've also got like really great engineers here in New York where like things are much better in Silicon Valley is um, if you, for example, need like, you know, people like a world-class engineer and building like distributed systems with like parallel, like whatever, um, you know, like that's like, 
you know, where you you start like having like maybe like a thousand people uh, in the entire world that that like fit those criteria and like uh, a very, very significant percentage are going to be in Silicon Valley. Um, and as an early startup, you know, like you don't really need like, like uh, uh, those engineers just yet. Um, so like New York is, is still like uh, a great place to start up. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned before, like the fact that like, you know, in the coffee shops, you've got like, like all this like TED talk. And I do think that it kind of like creates like these bubbles and these like echo chambers uh, where like uh, it's almost not incestuous, but like close to it where, <laughs> um, you know, you don't interact with like other people um, that are outside of your domain. And I think that like New York's amazing for that, right? Where you have like people from like all different like walks of life um, kind of like coming together and like talking to each other. And that's, you know, how the best ideas are formed, uh, at least I think. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I'm, I want to dive into the, your statement of, around the funding, how in San Francisco money is getting like thrown at you. And like, I can't really relate to that. I live in Phoenix. I don't know what it's like to, to live in San Francisco. Um, but I definitely see it from afar that everyone gets funded. It's pretty, it's, it's, it's nuts. Um, and in New York, you kind of have to work for a little more. Um, I kind of want you to go into what is the standard way to raise a seed round in New York? Just because I'm curious just for me, because like in Phoenix, like you don't really do it. Like you just go out, you go somewhere else to raise money. But in New York, like you got capital. So if it's different from San Francisco, what are, what are some of the New York investors kind of like looking for that might be different from a San Francisco investor who just like will give you a 100K check, you know, after a conversation? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it, 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 it like comes down to like a couple different factors. Um, one, like there's a big, big difference between angels and venture capitalists. Um, angels, uh, have a lot less due diligence and are usually investing out of their own pocket. Uh, which means that, uh, they can write you that like hundred K check after dinner. Um, and I think there are overall just many, many more angel investors in San Francisco than there are in New York. Um, two, like the fact that, you know, uh, well, like venture capital firms in the end are still like businesses with like limited partners that they have to like, uh, you know, like answer to. And, you know, like, like each one of their investments in the end is, uh, subject to scrutiny like not a lot of scrutiny just because I, I think like most of them like sign like some kind of like clause that essentially prevents the limited partners from actually like you know like having a say in the business um but they do have to do a lot more due diligence um i i don't know like how much like that answers like your question about like you know like how yeah. fast is it to like kind of like get a check but yeah i mean it's it's interesting just because i mean everything's interesting for me because like i live in this place where you know there's like three vc firms and none of them are gonna and like th three seed vc firms and none of them are gonna invest before like you have like a million dollars aor aka like we don't have a seed like there's no seed funding here there's no like angels it's, it's pretty dry so I just, I'm pretty, um, and that's obviously subjective opinion. Others would say differently, but like, I feel like I have a pretty good grip or grasp on what's going on here. Um, so I'm just kind of, I'm always interested to learn about different scenes 
and the funding environment over there in case I decide to uh, like something I've actually been interested in, in in doing is almost starting like a remote accelerator, but only for people in Phoenix who like don't have access to anyone outside. I mean, they've, everyone has access, but, but you don't think you have access, right? You gotta you gotta force your access. So I was thinking about like. What if I, I don't know, build an accelerator just for Phoenix, connect them to people in San Francisco and New York and like either charge cash or take a little equity. I don't know, but that's why I asked. I'm just like kind of curious about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like um, accelerators are all the rage lately. I think uh, Techstars done a pretty good job with that. You know, of like, you know, branching out like outside of San Francisco um, uh, and trying to like, you know, have like locations in LA, New York. and like all around the world. Uh, another one I heard about recently, which is a fully remote like accelerator. And I say that in quotes, uh, just because like, it, it's, it's a little different from like um, YC or like uh, tech stars where, you know, you don't have like, uh, I think a mentorship program, um, but uh, it's pioneer.app, which is oh, yeah. actually founded by like the, uh, yeah, like old uh, YC AI partner, Daniel Gross. Um, so that, that, that was super interesting. Um, I, I definitely would equate like pioneer.app to something more like a startup school. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of startup school. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah, the, the 10 week YC program. Um, yeah, also I'm, very, I'm very cool. all that stuff. I, I was actually, I, I did the, like the first three tournaments of pioneer back in like August of 2018, I think, or was it 2019? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is one of the two. It was 2018, and um, yeah, it just blew my mind. And I still play month, uh, still play every month. It's like such an interesting uh, concept. Yeah, yeah, super, super interesting. I, I especially think it's uh, with the rise of like remote work, etc. It's it, it it might become a lot lot bigger. Um, actually, interesting fact: my uh, my co-founder uh, lives in LA, so we've actually been working on this uh, remotely together over the past like. Uh, couple months nice um, that's cool and i i can definitely see like uh you know the reason why there's all these like really cool startups like popping up like tandem and uh uh that that kind of like really tackle like remote work um but yeah i i do think that uh you know if like the ever increasing like san francisco like rent prices um and like other like you know like factors uh that might be like slightly less significant um, remote accelerators uh, might become like a bigger phenomenon that they are currently or uh, not remote, but you know, international yeah, I understand. Like outside yeah. of San Francisco decentralized. hundred percent. I feel like a model that's interesting is finding, I, I call them outsiders and insiders, like finding outsiders investing at reasonable valuations, you know, but to them they're like great valuations because they would never get that type of thing at, their hometown and then introducing them mm-hmm. to insiders in San Francisco and New York and then like letting them like, like kind of passing on the torch. That's something I've thought about. It's unfortunately you can't do that if you don't have any money to invest, but one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess that's like a completely like different um, thing. It's more like, okay, well, how do you invest as a, as a non-accredited investor? Um, I think that like Republic Republic has done like a, I, I honestly, like, I'm not super familiar with, like, this entire space, so I, I can't talk too much about it, but I, I think Republic is, like, tackling it. 
Um, yeah, yeah, you got Republican seed invest to allow you to invest through crowdfunding, but you, it can't be anyone. It has to be someone on the Republic platform. So like, if I wanted to invest in like a cool company, I couldn't do it unless they were on Republic. And like very few companies do do Republic. Um, yeah. I'm kind of betting on is SEC changing the accredited investor law so anyone can invest. Um, so that would be great. That'd be good for people like me who like aren't accredited investors, but have like decent deal flow. But you know, whatever. We'll we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I do think that there's like a very good, um, uh, yeah. At, at least for like seed stage, um, like it, it it would be great if you know like more people could invest. Um, I do think that like the risk profile, a lot is like seed stage investments are are like pretty crazy which is why like, you know, some of these accredited investor like laws exist. Um, Definitely. But yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm with you on that. Well, I have one last question for you and then we'll call it a day. I appreciate you, you jamming on all these different topics. Um, mm -hmm. My last one is what do you think, you know, in a perfect world, what 10 years from now, this new product that you're launching in a couple of days, like what does it look like and, and how big does it get? And what does it look like if it reaches that, that scale? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. Uh, thanks for asking it. Um, you know, one of the things that I was really, really excited about with this idea is, um, some things, you know, like that seems like so simple and like small, um, just faster customer ticket tagging is actually a segue into a lot of like really, really great stuff. Um, so, you know, obviously like I think next step, um, like beyond like sentiment analysis for each customer ticket is actually, as I mentioned, uh, plug into, um, you know, uh, actual like company analytics. So trying to like see, okay, well, which customer turned and like, how can we link it to this? But also like which customers have like, really great retention, really great engagement, essentially like almost the champions of your product and see what they say about your product, right? Um, and essentially like really being able to like link what people are telling you to, um, you know, like their actual actions, uh, I think is going to be incredibly, incredibly useful. You know, you still have entire teams of people, um, you know, like they're called like marketing ops, they're called like growth product managers, um, they're called like uh, growth data scientists, uh, you know, that like essentially try to like use like all these different like libraries like Pandas or like Tableau to essentially like dig deep into the data. And, you know, they, they get like one side of the story, but then like what people are actually telling you and how you can link that data that's essentially like company specific, that's like, um, like user are not aware of it to what users are actually telling you is going to be um, essentially like the next evolution in uh, customer success, customer support, and uh, overall just engagement for all companies. And, you know, kind of like even just beyond that, um, like potential areas we could expand into like beyond that, um, we could really go like two ways, either go the product management side, so try to like do something a little bit like uh, product board is doing, uh, which is like, okay, how do we help like people actually build out these features to respond to these tags? Or we could go the customer support side and try to see like, okay, well, like now that we've like gotten like really good at triaging, 
like customer support conversations, how can we essentially like, uh, for example, like take tickets and like, like send them to the people that are like the best, um, like uh, equipped to answer the tickets and uh, essentially tag them. So for example, if a, a like ticket is uh, about like a technical problem, how do we route that ticket directly to the engineers instead of like having like a customer support agent like be a, a middleman? Um, so, you know, pl plenty of avenues to go up, down, sideways uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, expanding the product. Yeah, definitely. It sounds exciting. And it sounds like you have an awesome road ahead of you. Uh, I guess my last question is, if someone wanted to find you on the internet, uh, find your website, get in touch with you, um, you know, what are the links they can find or the emails where they can find you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can find us at tagai.io. Uh, it's spelled T-A-G-A-I dot I-O. And uh, my email, if you'd like to reach me, uh, well, you can just email us at hello at tagai.io. Uh, yeah. All right, there we go. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We went in all sorts of directions, all very interesting stuff. And I appreciate you just coming on and jamming for a bit. So, uh, you know, best of luck and, and, you know, keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me again.